This is The Miller's Tale, Episode 6. Welcome to The Miller's Tale, episode six, take three, for a number of complicated reasons, for which I apologise profusely. Um, take one was largely delayed because of dealing with my son trying to get himself into various university applications, not helped by his former college being completely useless when it came to references. Um, and by a friend of mine sadly passing away while staying with us at the beginning of February, which huh, made for a slightly fraught February. Um, take one was then, frankly, rubbish, sufficiently so that I listened to it back a few days after I'd recorded it and deleted it on the spot. Take two uh, it was great, except for the fact that I didn't record the thinky bit at the end, for want of a better term for it. And um, then I got embroiled in the whole process of building the club salute game. And now I come to think about recording the thinky bits. I find that the what I did and the news are all sufficiently far out of date that, quite frankly, um, they need re-recording. So with the exception of a few odd bits, which will get re-recorded anyway, what I've done, etc., will be largely new. So, yeah, that's how it is. Um, this podcast is being brought to you with the aid of a sadly long-gone lemon cake generously gifted by Merv um, at Hammerhead, which seems an awful long time ago, and also by a care parcel from John Yingling. Thank you ever so much, John, you butcher you. Uh, containing, which will cause the Americans to go, oh no, and probably the Brits to go, what? Two packs of Girl Scout cookies. Uh, the last of which, um, while they were originally gifted to help me get through recording the podcast, did in fact go on helping me get through painting the last of the figures for our salute game. And yes, I am now hopelessly addicted to thin mints, which should come as no surprise to any American. And I will be seeking out fresh supplies when we're in the States over the summer. A big thank you to Merv and to John for feeding my sad, sad um, cake and cookies habit. Uh, it is much appreciated, guys. Thank you ever so much. And on with the show. Feedback. One or two comments of notes since the last one. First comes from Whiskers. Um, thank you, Whiskers, who says, Totally agree with your comments about teaching history to teenagers. I hated it at school, but subsequently exchanged in living history from 1640 to 1815. Keep up the good work. Thank you. I shall. An equally Important comment from PM Goitzer, I hope I pronounced that right, who says, in no uncertain terms, please turn down the bumper music so it's not as loud as your speech. And yeah, you're quite right, PM. Um, it was a bit bad on the last episode, and I will take steps to fix it. Sorry, and apologies to anybody else who got their ears blasted through their nose when the bumpers came on. Right, let's start with a few bits of hobby news of, I think, what kind of be described as varying ages. 
Uh, we'll begin with a new to the scene, or was a month or so ago, uh, MDF Terrain Builder. This being Titan Terrain of New Zealand. I had a little exchange with them via email, and I actually really, really like their stuff, so I figured that it can't hurt to draw it to your attention. They're predominantly now 28mm. Uh, they haven't done anything else yet, but the stuff they do is very, very nice indeed. They've got... Everybody does it, but they do it well. The classic set of Gothic ruins, for those of you who want to play 40k or equivalent, they fit in with with the, the Warhammer Gothic ruins. They're uh, rather nicely put together. The big bundle is... 134 New Zealand dollars, which is a currency I haven't previously had to change um, from and to. So let's let's ask Google, shall we, and see what she says to GBP. Yeah, let's do that. And 134 New Zealand dollars is 70 quid. Yeah, that's not bad. It's a bundle of one, two, three, four big bits and a few small bits. One, two, three big bits and a few small bits of Gothic ruin. Um, they look pretty good, actually. I, I really, were I were I of the Warhammer persuasion, I'd be quite happy to see those on on my table. Um, what else do they do? They do a sci-fi slum, um, which is literally what it says. Um, some walkways, some barricades, the obligatory dumpsters, and a few shops, which for once aren't completely modular and and cargo cult, 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 cookie cutter in the way that you quite often see where basically someone's taken the same MDF kit and added a little few different bits of surface detail and called it a different building. They've actually gone out of their way to produce things that do look different from building to building. Uh, they're very nicely put together, actually. There's also a freight hub, which includes a sci-fi warehouse, a sci-fi container carrier, some shipping containers. Everybody does shipping containers. Uh, an octagonal storage tank. Um, <laughs> we'll let them off for not um, not attempting to make it round, because that's actually quite tricky. Um, again, sci-fi scenery, same price for a bundle, or thereabouts, about 70 quid. Um, they're really nice. Uh, we have fortification. Now, these look very like the, um, is it the Aegis Defence stuff, the stuff we have at our club uh, for Warhammer 40k. Lots of big walls with sloping... Um, ah, what's the word? The, 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 not rampart, the low bit at the bottom. Um, it's not quite buttress, but you know what I mean. And they, they look like they probably fit in. They're modular, so you can build a massive great fortress out of assorted bits and bobs. They do a, a wall bundle for a very reasonable... Uh, that price has to be a misprint, surely. <laughs> oh, maybe not. No, maybe not. They do a wall... <coughs> they do a retaining wall where single bits are about eight New Zealand dollars, uh, and the whole kit works out about 20 quid. Um, they do big bits of modular fortress to sit inside it. It all looks lovely. Uh, and then, of course... Of course, everybody's got to do it. They do World War Two, but and it's a good but. I, if I were modelling in twenty-eight mil rather than fifteen mil, I could probably still build an entire French town in twenty-eight millimeters out of the products of various manufacturers, and guarantee that just about everything will be a little two-story townhouse. Um, Okay, now there are exceptions to that, but there's an awful lot of people producing the standard set of two and three story townhouses for a Normandy street. Um, he's gone a little bit the other way, and I approve, in that he's got a farmhouse and a country house, small cottage, um, a big apartment block, um, a factory, complete with uh, hoist and door on the, th on the top floor. And they're all they're all that little bit the kind of thing you'd want one of somewhere in your house in your 
street rather than a big pack off and, and they're things a lot of other people don't do the other thing he does which i so am buying uh because they are fabulous is a little range of civilian vehicles now they are basically a little truck and a little austin alike i don't know what it is but it's a it's a 30s era car and the fabulous thing about them is that they're probably some of the nicest pieces of mdf engineering at that scale as regards being a vehicle that i've seen they have properly curved mudguards for a start they have wheels that don't look like they will bump along on on multiple faces i mean they clearly they are actually multi-faced but they're sufficiently many multi-faces that they look pretty smooth um in short, they're, they're, they're really, really clever bits of MDF engineering. They're a mix of, in, in the way of Sarissa, they are a mix of MDF and Greybold. But he does appear to have... Okay, what's the nice way to put this? They appear to have been made by someone who has more skill in MDF designing than his time as a public vendor of MDF terrain would suggest. They are very, very slick looking. And there's a set of four civilian vehicles for 30 New Zealand dollars, which is about 15 quid. And even allowing for the postage from New Zealand, those look like they should be an absolute doozy. So anyway, that's Titan Terrain from New Zealand. Titan Terrain, all one word, dot NZ. Link will be in the show notes. Um, don't know what the postage to the uk will be um it's going to be shipped via dhl it's going to be two to three weeks but frankly how long is it going to sit in your painting bar before you get around to it they're lovely uh, i commend them to you next up a couple of bits of variously club related news um it's my job as chairman um to um promote what my club gets up to and since i can do it on my podcast without having various co-presenters make pointed size at me i'll do it so a couple of things um Harrowood wargame show is coming up as ever first sunday in september which this year is september the first our headline sponsors are footsore miniatures and games now, for those of you who haven't been following the saga on Twitter, Facebook, and anywhere else of late, um, and I will link to that on the show notes as well, they've been going through a bit of a problem. They decided to brand as War Banner. Um, Games Workshop decided it sounded too much like Warhammer. Um, not in any language I speak, but hey, who am I to argue? So they issued a cease and desist. Um, so they went for Dark Peak Games, as that's the bit of Derbyshire they are near. And some outfit in the States called Peak Games, who produce casual games for mobile devices, decided that that was close enough to the same field of endeavour and the same name, that, that there was a real, genuine, serious, dangerous risk that they might mistake an iPad game for a set of... 28 mil Roman figures. I'm not sounding very convincing here, am I? Anyway, so with a blessing from Bill Thornton, the original owner of Futsal, who they distribute, they are now Futsal Miniatures and Games, and more power to them. And they are our headline sponsor for the show. We will be having a giveaway figure, and as soon as we have it, we will let you see it, and you can drool over it. Okay, so, other club thing. Pochelard. Um, we didn't do one last year, as, as some of you may be aware, mostly because um, well, I think we may have picked the wrong day, um, to be perfectly honest. We got sufficiently few sign-ups that it was going to be a bit of a dead loss, so we yeah, unfortunately had to pull it. This year, we are hoping to put Pochelard on on Sunday, June the 2nd, which is the closest Sunday to D-Day-ish. Well, actually, it's the following Sunday, but enough lardies will be in Evesham for um, Operation Market Larden that we felt that the previous weekend would be better. So, um, yeah, it's largely going to have a D-Day theme. 
Um, for those of you who didn't get a chance to sit down with Bloody Omaha at Salute, we will be putting Bloody Omaha on again. The Gravesend guys have promised to bring an 82nd Airborne Chain of Command game set in San Marigliz. Um I'm hoping to find Gary from our club to put on his Brickle Manor game, for which he has all the scenery, and we were still kind of fine-tuning how to make it work in Chain of Command, because it's not entirely trivial. And there may possibly be others. Now, the way this is going to work is I've stuck notices on various Facebook groups and Yahoo groups and Fora and Twitter, etc. and here. And the intent is that we'll see what level of interest we have by the end of April. And if it is sufficient, we will go ahead and I will get in touch with everybody who expressed an interest and extend a more general invite. It will be... An all-day session in the middle of Peterborough. We have parking for free on the premises for those who haven't been before. There's a Weatherspoons across the road. Uh, there's Subway and a McDonald's and a Waitrose within easy yomping distance. There is a very nice real ale pub and Thai, brewer, Thai restaurant uh, five minutes around the corner that we will probably decamp to afterwards for those who want to. Um, so yeah, Poshlav 2019, 2nd of June assuming that we get enough interest, so you know what to do. Right, so what have I been up to? Um, this is the third attempt at this, see previous notes. Uh, so some things may fall away into the mist of time. I think the major thing we've been up to is a couple of shows. Hammerhead, um, to which we took the Schloss Itter game. Now, if you're not familiar with the, the story of Schloss Itter, the, the potted summary goes shortly after Hitler died, um, there were a bunch of Wehrmacht holed up in Schloss Itter, which is a castle in Austria, Germany, can't remember, haven't got the notes with me, um, <laughs> with a bunch of French prisoners who figured out which side their bread was buttered on, decided that they weren't going to hand this lot over to the SS. So they essentially sent a runner, who turned out to be a retired French tennis player, um, out to the American forces and said, please come and get us because we'd rather not surrender. We'd rather not hand these prisoners over to the SS. These, these prisoners, including two former French prime ministers and a um, sister of Charles de Gaulle, among other things. So the Americans come piling through past the SS defences so fast the SS defences don't know what hit them, park a, an easy eight in the gateway, and proceed to defend the crap out of the castle with essentially about a dozen Wehrmacht, a dozen um, Americans, a dozen partisans, an SS officer who has seen more sense than most of the rest of his comrades, against about 100 or 200 SS until such time as the relieving large force of Americans arrives. And there you have what's been billed, I think quite reasonably, as the strangest battle of World War Two. It's your authentic, honest-to-God, blue-plus-red-on-blue encounter, or whichever way around you want to call it. <coughs> yeah, we, we built the castle gatehouse on the grounds that the castle is one of these stupidly large German schlosses and building all of it would be um, taxing, to say the least. And, and we had a fun little skirmish game, um, which needs a bit of fine-tuning, I'll be honest, but it's an interesting story. Um, as ever, we uh, produced a big banner, which quite, quite usefully doubled as scenery, as it had a picture of the rest of the castle on it. Um, Oh, that was quite fun. Um, Hammerhead was a good show. It always is a good show. I like the venue. Once you're in and the doors are shut, it's a bit of a pain rigging on a cold day because they have the doors at both ends open in order to allow people to load in. And a howling gale blows from one end to the other, such that, for example, if we're near the doors, we don't put our banners up uh, until they've shut the doors. Otherwise, they just blow straight over. Um, and it's the kind of show where you need a jacket until about 11 o'clock, even on quite a warm day. But other than that, it was a good show. I, I bought, well, stuff, but then I always do. And, and we had a good time. Far far bigger, uh, as ever, and, and even more of a freaking barn, uh, to misquote Blues Brothers. Uh, salute. We took, as those of you who've been following my blog will be well aware, the Omaha Beach game, for which everybody keeps trying to credit me, and I have to respectfully pass. The original scenario pretty much from whole cloth 
is in the Where the Hell Have You Been Boys supplement for I Ain't Been Chopmum, authored by Rich Clark. Um, my real input has been building the terrain. Um, building an 8 foot by 6 foot chunk of Omaha Beach is not entirely trivial, um, for which many thanks to my colleague Andy Miller, who is the man who turns my 3D stupidity, my, my, my stupidity into 3D reality. Uh, amassing 500-odd American troops... And generally, um, generally doing a little bit of a translate from I ain't been shopman two to I ain't been shopman three. Um, but real credit has to go to Rich uh, for what is a very, very challenging scenario. Uh, I know I've talked about it before in other podcasts. Essentially, you have three waves of six American assault boat sections with about thirty men on each boat uh, against <laughs> maybe thirty Germans, if that. Essentially, there's there's half a dozen machine gun teams of four. Um, and a couple of mortars, and a couple of officers, two 75mm guns in bunkers, and an off-table 88, which the US Navy will probably shut down um, after the first half dozen turns or so. Uh, So we did the usual, there's there's lots of historical stuff, big display board, um, and I was quite amazed, actually. I I, It's ain't been shot, Mum. With the best will in the world, and I, I say this as someone who loves the game to pieces... Um, it's not the kind of game you would have thought would be easy to introduce to people who've not played the game before, to particularly to kids of, of the age of 12, 13, possibly younger in some cases. But we were too deep around the table until 4pm. We had we had people playing. Some people stayed there for an hour or two. Um, and I think the, the, the reason for that, to be honest, was that we had enough people running the game that we could, we could handhold. And it wasn't a case of, well... Here's the game. Here's the rules. You're on your own now. Uh, it went really well. We we kind of, I guess, we kind of took a punt on it because it is the 75th anniversary of D-Day, uh, and we've had the game for a while. It was built for Operation Market Laden in 2014. Gosh, that's a while ago, and was rebuilt and generally tarted up for this year. Um, and it seemed a shame not to put it on at salute in the year that's the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And in fact, it all went pretty well. So that was Salute. Um, I didn't actually buy that much, to be honest, mostly because I didn't leave the table that much. I, I paid a little trip to wall bases and picked up some of their lovely musketeer figures, which are utterly drool-worthy. Okay, they are, to a certain extent, based on the BBC show, but they are lovely, and I really, really do like them. Uh, and I also picked up from TT Combat the their Venice Streets pack at about a 33% discount. Uh, which maybe for the clubber I may hang on to. I've just noticed that in the Flashing Blades RPG, of which I'm a big fan, there is an entire scenario set in Venice, uh, which may allow me to combine my two purchases into one. We shall see. The other event I've been to is a little gathering called Crisis Point, run on the edge of the Yorkshire Hills, uh, the Peaks, I think, to be strictly accurate, by Rich Crawley, whose blog is Land of Counterpain. Uh, thoroughly nice chaps, thoroughly nice folks. I did actually prep a small I Ain't Been Shot on Light game, just in case my arrival and that of others threw them over the limit for the number of games they had prepared. But in the end, it wasn't necessary. So given it was an I being shot on light bulb, light game and didn't take up much space, it stayed in the car, um, I got to play Chain of Command. On, on the Saturday, which was great fun. I think that might be one of the first times I've played Chain of Command when I've not been umpiring it, using my quick reference sheets, which was quite good, because I found at least one problem, which I've now fixed. Um, had a whale of a time, had possibly one of the most unpleasant close assaults, which fortunately I was on the delivering end of. Uh, 37 dice to 15, I think it was. Uh, needless to say, the, uh, the attackers didn't do very well on that one. On the f- Sunday, um, I got to play Battle Group. Uh, the the plastic soldier company etc. Uh, World War Two company level rules, which sort of are are a rival to I ain't been shot, mum. Um, interesting scenario based on the hypothetical German invasion of Malta, otherwise known as Operation Hercules. Uh, more detailed review on my blog, but suffice it to say, <laughs> with the best one in the world, uh, I think I'll stick to I ain't been shot, mum. Not that that should come as any surprise to anybody. Apart from that. Um, been playing a little bit of I Ain't Been Shopman, been playing some Pikeman's Lament in preparation for the club's um, 
continuing campaign. Had a go at the um, horse and musket um, ACWAWI variant of the Dan Mersey rule set, which, again, I'm of the opinion that the rules as they are work much better with horses and muskets and rifles and things than they do with blokes and spear blokes with spears and blokes with swords uh, and maybe it's just me maybe my style of play lends itself better to those rules and lines of infantry firing muskets but there you go more on that in a bit i think i've actually hit the point where that might be one of the rule sets or the collective rule sets as a whole wind up in a cold light of day review because i think i've played enough of dan mersey's lion rampant dragon rampant pipeman's lament men who will be king game engine they all share the same core game engine that i'm prepared to uh, talk about it a bit so that may well come soon so that's kind of it for what i've done watch i'm sticking with terrain building youtube channels at the moment largely because as you will have noticed if you've been following my blog i've been on a massive 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 terrain building kick there's also been a kickstarter that, that has grabbed my attention so um mal the terrain tutor um if you've been hiding under a rock for the last few years you might have missed his um well, <laughs> you might have missed his YouTube channel. You might have missed the fact that he wanders around Salute every year and a couple of the other shows with a video camera and videos every single table and with a running commentary. He's a lovely bloke. He does a fabulous um, terrain tutorial channel on YouTube, which has now actually some pretty damn good production values. He does know his stuff um, and... I've absorbed lots of ideas from it. The salute boards owe quite a bit to him, although I need to go away and... Ha! Laughter. I need to go away and reflock them because I'm still not happy with the flock on them. Better though it is than it used to be. And the other thing to be aware of is he's just finished a Kickstarter for a book, which has done the good thing that Kickstarters that deserve to do it have, um, in that... It's an honest-to-God proper crowdfunding Kickstarter, none of these dodgy pre-sales things. Um, and he's raised the neck end of a quarter of a million bucks, which will be enough to produce a very nice glossy hardcover book for um, all the folks who subscribed. And frankly, it's going to be lovely, and I'm quite looking forward to it. Um, what can you say? Um, it's very nice to see someone who's basically set themselves out to make a living out of the hobby um, and out of marketing and um, teaching his own skills, uh, making quite a success of it. I'm well aware that the upshot of the, um, the Kickstarter is not just in how much it costs to produce the book, but in the fact that it's one of the things that allows Mal to keep on doing his hobby. Um, and frankly, I find that really inspiring. Um, and I wholeheartedly approve. And if you have somehow managed to avoid him for the last however many years it is, please do go and check him out. Links in the show notes. And also, um, it's not too late to sneak in in the backer kit. What's the word? The, the post-Kickstarter um, backer kit stuff when it pops up to get yourself a copy of the book. Um, and like Pat Smith's uh, Silver Whistles um, Winter One and the one he's working on, I suspect it will be well worth the money. I've been thinking, uh, as is, as you're probably aware by now, often the case when I come to record these podcasts, and it's a combination of having run a couple of show games in the recent past, 
of a couple of things that various people have said on Twitter, uh, a couple of questions that club members have asked or caused to be asked. Uh, and it's really mm, kind of, well, it's not quite our responsibilities as wargamers, but it certainly touches on that. What am I talking about? Well, this is not going to apply to everybody, because I know not all of you who listen put show games on, not all of you run clubs, not all of you are members of clubs, um, but I think it applies to a goodly few few of my listeners, uh, and it's been sort of hovering around what passes for a mind here for a while, so so I thought I'd, I'd get it out of my system. Uh, it's also part of an article that I, I wrote and uh, submitted to Wargame Soldiers and Strategy, which I think Guy has managed to lose in his uh, recent chaos. Um, so, anyway, responsibilities of Wargamers. I think the thing that prompted this up at first was um, somebody asking me um, who was planning on putting on a game at the club what what rating they should be aiming for you know are we what whether they should be trying to cater for a younger audience or what now it's a tricky one this because I mean all games <laughs> You'd have thought, perhaps, that War Games is not a young hobby, but judging by the crowds around our table at Salute, this is obviously not the case. And perhaps, perhaps there is something to be said for considering the audience to which to which we have to cater. And the other thing that cropped up on that score was some questions at the club from someone I won't name or, or embarrass on the subject of um, full-scale one-to-one military regalia. Uh, and and photos involving club members and club games. Now, those of you who remember certain unfortunate incidents at salutes of the past will will not be surprised to know that that the chairmanly response to that was, uh, "Can we keep our military regalia to twenty eight mil or smaller, please?" And and I think that's that's part of that's part of one side of the whole issue, which is that we we need. A club, a club needs to protect its reputation, and it is very obvious to me from past past experiences and, and, and things in, in in papers that, that the pa- papers will jump on anything and everything. And the last thing you want as a wargame club is to have um, <sighs> certain four-letter words with Zs in bandied around uh, because you happen to be displaying some full-scale World War Two regalia or similar um, that. Uh, that are controversial. Now, obviously, that really is, to a degree, a matter of personal taste. I know there are folks out in, like in Chocolate Land, for example, who use the swastika as the um, German blind symbol. Now, I don't. I use the uh, Balkenkreuz, uh, the one that you usually see on the side of Panzers, just because uh, I happen to have, well, partly because I happen to have a handy piece of artwork for it when War Bases made my blinds, but partly because. <sighs> I don't think it's necessary. Um, that that really is. I think at, at, down at twenty-eight mil scale, it's a matter of personal taste. Uh, I think at the kind of full scale where you're you're walking around in SS or, or the like regalia or displaying large swastika banners, I think you are probably pushing the limits of what would be considered reasonable in a public environment. Which sort of brings me on to the whole war games in the public eye thing, particularly. Um, given we have the Milton Keynes show coming up, which is in an open public shopping mall. Um, and in the past, you know, Salute has a fair number of the general public. It has people coming in who are not necessarily part of the hobby and you're looking to draw in. And, you know, it's an interesting question that it all raises of what should be us as Wargamers approach to to a game that we put on at a show. And... I am actually quite opinionated about this. Um, I've mentioned some of this in the blog before, but um, essentially, um, my key viewpoint on this is the show organisers have let you in free. Um, if this were a model railway show, the show organisers have actually paid for you to turn up. In a lot of cases, if you're bringing a big layout to a model railway show, this is harking back to the previous episode, of course. Um, they will pay you for your travel costs and quite often a hotel as well, because it's a big undertaking. Now, that's one of the many divides between our hobby and model railways. But the fact still remains that 
fundamentally, the club who is organising the show have waived your membership fee, possibly provided you with um, coffee tokens uh, or more, etc. In return for which your job, as I see it, is to put on a game which entertains the public. Now, at least entertains the attendees, and you can argue as to whether the attendees equals the public, but in general, um, you you don't know who's going to be turning up. Uh, And I think as a result, you as a gamer or as a, as a club have a certain certain level of obligation to both the show organisers and the public to not do a half-assed job, for want of a better phrase. To which, to which intent, uh, I think there's there's a few obvious takeaways from here. First one, and the one that actually you can get me to rant on for quite a while if if so motivated, is the whole concept that you are not there to play a game for your own fun. And, and it really actually annoys me when people do this and don't involve the people watching. And, and fundamentally, if I turn up at a show and all I'm seeing is you're back facing the table, sat down talking to your mates, then I actually start to wonder whether you shouldn't have just stayed home and, and found a sufficiently large hall or something to put your game on in. Um, there are some very obviously guilty parties at this who are, on occasions, flat-out rude or dismissive of members of the public and even members of the hobby um, asking them questions about their game because it's far more important that they game on, get their game on. Um, that's the one. Number two, playtest, 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 and for God's sake, playtest. Particularly if you're doing anything that is at all out of the ordinary that you haven't run before, that has people involved on your side who don't necessarily understand the game. I'll be absolutely honest. Our Hammerhead game could have been an awful lot better were we not rewriting the rules on the Thursday before before the uh, show. Um, and that will not happen again. But you really do owe it to everybody who's going to be interacting with the public and, and as well as the public to know how your game works, to have play-tested enough times with enough deviously-minded people, preferably you weren't in on the creation of the game, that you've caught most of the likely uh, gotchas, questions, etc. Um, particularly amusing tale on that score. For those of you who remember our Dead Army game, um, about the first rule we added after the first playtest was, yes, you can run down zombies with Corporal Jones's van because someone tried it. Uh, Rob said, I don't have a rule for that. And the chorus from the other side of the table was, well, make one up then and write it down. So, yeah, essentially, playtest, playtest, and when you think you've playtested, playtest some more. Next up, ooh, this is a tricky one. Um, I have said in the past, make it short. <laughs> What I don't mean by that is it's got to be a little 10-minute silly thing, um, or 10-minute dip in and run away again. Now, admittedly, our Dambusters game, from our point of view, was brilliant for that, in that it took at the most five minutes, maybe ten, for someone to get from one end of the lake to the other, drop the bomb, um, get their medal, um, get shown by one of the club round to the historical display, congratulated, and move on to the next. Um, I appreciate and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to suggest everybody's game should be like, I appreciate you can't do that. But you have to remember, I mean, it's worse for something like Salute. But for even for a normal 10 to 4 show, someone has paid a fiver to get in and catch what's probably 20 to 30 games, 20 to 30 traders. Uh, and unless your game is absolutely blooming brilliant, and the one thing they came to the show to see, they probably don't have two hours to play your game. Now, if your game happens to take more than that, that's fine, but you need to provide the ability to dip in, dip out. Um, If you want to see a really excellent example of that, Rich Clark running Chain of Command games, which typically run two hours, and you'll get maybe three in over the course of a show like Salute. And there's always a crowd around the table, and it's a constantly changing crowd. And that's, again, because... A, he makes it possible for people to dip in for a few minutes and see how the mechanics work, see what's going on. And the other thing he always, always does is engages. And this is, again, your compromise. is a bit of a compromise here. Nobody would ever say Rich's rules are simple, but he is always there. He is always engaged with the punters so that he can supply, he's not requiring them to sit with a copy of the rules and figure out what they do next. He's always talking, he's always helping, he is always making sure that the people at his table are getting a valuable gaming experience because, frankly, it's in his interest as a seller of rules. And even if it wasn't, 
that's the approach. Um, which is sort of make it simple. Um, make it accessible, I think, is probably more accurate than make it simple. Make it big is is another point here. And I, I don't necessarily mean it's got to be 54 mil scale or it's got to be um, 10 by 8 or an 18 foot long lake. It's got to be easy to assimilate. You've got to be able to look at it from over someone's shoulder too deep at a busy show, which you'd rather hope your game would be. And you need to make sure that people can take in what's going on and get involved, ask questions. Uh, it means you've got a um, big... I'd hesitate to say almost make it dramatic, make it make it a visual a visual spectacle because more else that'll get people to your table. Which moves on to, of course, making it look good. Now, I'm not perfect at this, and I know nobody else is perfect all the time. But there are some obvious things here. Get your coffee cups and lunch boxes off the table itself. You've got a table. You've got massive table space, so purchases and coats go underneath it, please. Get yourself an extra table. If you need a... Um, this is this is something that, with hindsight, is so blooming obvious, but the number of games where I've gone, oh, we're taking a 6x4, so I only need two standard show tables. Standard show tables are 6 foot by 2 foot 6, which means that you're putting a 6x4 game on a 6x5 table, which gives you about 6 inches at both edges, which is nowhere near enough. I would never with hindsight now put a 6x4 game on anything smaller than 3 tables and 6x7 foot 6. And in an ideal world, I'd probably ask the show for 4 tables so that I can put game reference sheets and the like or more to the point, historical information or anything else about the show um, on that separate table so it doesn't have to go on the table and you've got space round the table to roll dice, etc, etc, etc. You can reach into the middle of a six-foot table. I wouldn't go any bigger, but essentially you need to allow space because otherwise it'll just look cluttered. If someone looks like they're going to take a photo, then clear off the clear dice off the table for them. I've started... We did, for those who were at Salute, start using dice trays to roll because it keeps dice off the table and makes the table look much better. Um, what else? Um, get a banner. They're easy. They're cheap. Um, I'll do you one for under 50 quid. If you can design your own, it's 30 quid on eBay. Um, get club shirts. Just makes you look better. If you've got name badges, then it's probably a good idea. Um, if you've got handouts take a little bit of time to do a little bit of graphic design on them laminate them um it just just makes it makes it look cleaner uh and the other rule is if you're at the table you're working if you need to go eat um if you need to sit and natter with your friends you should to my mind go and do it elsewhere and the other one that i know i'm guilty of and i have a bad back so i plead is stand up it's much easier to engage with people if you are standing up because they are going to come to your table standing up and you are then just going to meet them at their level. If, you, if you're sitting down, you will almost invariably be sitting down with your back to the approaching punters. Um, and that's the first, that's the first step in a, in, in a bad experience for them. Uh, the other two, um, I'm going through a little list here. Make it memorable. By which, you know, it's as simple as if, you've, if there is a way of winning the game... Particularly, for example, I'm going to take Dam Busters um, because that's that's an easy example. There is a way of winning the game. You blow the dam up or you do something stupidly heroic and don't. We had medals, little medal stickers. No disrespect at all attended, intended to the to the RAF and those people who've, who've earned them, but we had little, little medal stickers that if you blew the dam, you got a medal. Now, we had a little gag that um, the kids were officers uh, and the... Parents were NCOs, so parents uh, parents only ever got a DFC or a DFM. Uh, you had to be a kid to get a DSO or a VC. Um, and we also got some facsimile pilot logbooks. Now that was that was incredibly cheap. That was that was a fiver for a sheet of labels and a little bit of work with some printing. But the number of kids who who, who go away with a big grin really made it all worthwhile. And, and that goes into tell a story. If you want to grab people in. Have a game that tells a story. Um, again, oh, we're on an easy win with the Dan Busters. There's a story. And I love the fact that um, there were there were kids around the table whose dads were, were explaining to them that, you know, 
Dad, did this really happen? And and there's Dad's explaining the story, or Dad's mum's explaining the story. In fact, let's be let's be strictly accurate about this. Dad's mum's explaining the story, and we had we made a point of having a big pull-up banner with an explanation that that people could you know we could point out and say, look, this is what you're doing. This this is how the bomb bounced, and so on and so forth. Or or that Dad's could regret your kids, kids and kids and parents could could talk about we also had um a whole bunch of um prepared handouts for things like the roll of honor for the raid list of everybody who got medals a map display with the routes they took out and three little corgi lancasters one on each route we had which was fabulous i looked into thanks to my son being charming at east kirby um, some pieces of real lancaster which if you've been to our game you will you will have handled and they're just so incredibly tactful tactful tactile it's just being able to hand that to someone and say, look, that's all that's between you and the German bullets, and and, and that it's a 75-year-old relic of history. Um, the number of wowed expressions you get from that from the kids is brilliant. Um, we are lucky, and <clears throat> perhaps we are we are spoiled a bit. There are at least three ex-school teachers in our, in our club, all of whom can talk for England, um, all of whom are quite prepared to put in the necessary reading and research such that... By the time we run up a game at a show, they can talk about key features of what we're putting on. Um, and I think this comes to our last responsibility, and I, I appreciate that some people might think this is a bit arrogant, but um, I think one of our responsibilities, if we're putting on a game, club, club game, particularly if it's a historical one, is to teach. There are stories that are particularly... You, go, you can go back further than World War Two. But there are stories going back 70 years, a, dec- a century more, that will be remembered much better with an attendant wargame or an ability to sit down and experience what's going on, what went on, understand some of the things they faced, look at the memorabilia, look at the, look at the displays. And generally, it is a great thing. In fact, to a degree, I've said... On a number of occasions, if all I go away from a show with is the knowledge that there's a couple of dozen kids who've come and seen our game and go away knowing more than they did when they arrived about some piece of history, then I've achieved something. I think we've done one of the things we set out to do. Now, obviously, we're also in the business of entertaining. and There are people who just come to try out games and and see what they like. And and sometimes what you're there for is in fact to demonstrate a game and and try and pitch the game so people understand people may possibly want to buy it um but equally it's it's not massively hard work to to do the research uh, so that the game is more than just a game particularly if i mean i can't i can't speak for non-historical games because i'm mostly a historical gamer but there is there is much to be said in my mind for doing the research and being able to present the research, the story of the game. Even for for something like the Omaha Beach game we ran at Salute, to <laughs> say to the kids, when you're older and your dad lets you watch Saving Private Ryan, remember this game because you will understand uh, quite how hard it was. And yeah, we you know for our Border Reavers game a couple of years ago. Um, we just had the little shtick that there was a there was a list of a list of English surnames, English border surnames, English and Scottish border surnames on 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 a, on a laminated sheet on the on the table, and the and the challenge of you know were your family border reavers and that kind of thing. It just just draws people in. It makes people pay attention to your game. It makes it frankly it means the show get their money's worth out of you which okay in this case they're 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 not money's worth the money that you didn't pay them in order to come put your game on so yeah that's pretty much what i wanted to talk about um it's mostly because i've done far too many games recently and that only leaves the one the one final point in that it's that all sounds i'm sure it sounds like a lot of hard work but i've never yet if we've had a game, a good historical game that people have been coming up to and we've got all the display materials right and the game right, I might be absolutely knackered at the end of the day. But I can absolutely guarantee you that I will have had fun. And I know when we first put Dembusters on at Salute, we all pretty much collapsed around the table before we packed it all away and said, man, that was knackering. But by God, it was fun. And 
it's possible to do both, and it's a it's it's part of why I do shows. Um, I enjoy. Frankly, I could talk for England, and so can half of our club. So, so I, I really actively enjoy the process of interaction and explaining why we chose the game we did and what actually happened. And uh, anyway, there you go. Um, for those wondering, I actually recorded this first this time, so that even if I um, don't um, get round to the rest of the stuff tonight, um, I will actually have something that I can stick what I've done, etc., on without having to re-record it, which really I should have done about three months ago and we'd have had a podcast by now. But never mind. Anyway, that's it for now. you go that's the miller's tale episode six and it's a wrap which means all i have to do now is edit it (laughs) pause for laughter um so yeah look out for posh lard if you're interested in coming um it's not too early to book for harrywood uh if you're interested in being a trader or bringing us a participation game uh, bearing in mind some of the preceding rant, um, we'd love to have you. There are sign-up forms and contact details on the website, which, as ever, will be in the show notes. So, until then, as I said, I'm really, really sorry this has taken so long. Um, and let's try and not make it take so long next time. I've uh, got my head around a couple of the processes that make, make this a little easier. So hopefully we'll uh, continue tuning them out at a slightly more regular rate from here on in so all that remains for me to say is good luck and roll good dice and i'll catch you for the next one the miller's tale is licensed under a creative commons attribution non-commercial share alike 3.0 unported license This episode is respectfully dedicated to the memory of my good friend A.D. Walker, who passed away on the 24th of January 2019. I'd have loved to have got him involved with my hobby, and we were hoping to do so uh, in the time before he died. Sad to say it never happened, so A.D. mate, this one's for you.